Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome in. We are in 1 Corinthians 14 as we uh, plow through the New Testament in a number of years. Let's say a decade. In a decade, we will finish it sometime before 2030. <laughs> so, uh, cool. What are we going to do today? We're looking at First Corinthians chapter 14 and the, uh, back on the topic of spiritual gifts that we've been addressing for a few weeks. But, you know, I was thinking about this before we go too much further. And I don't know how many people realize this, but th- there's an old saying, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, Vinny, but Sunday afternoon is the loneliest day of the week for, for a pastor, you know? Mm. Pastors get home on Sunday afternoon and they just think about all the things that they should have done and they didn't do. And, you know, it's, it's, it really is a tough time. And it's like, leave them alone. Don't text them. Don't email them. Don't, you know, whatever. But uh, we wallow in our mire quite well on Sunday afternoons. But one of the things that happens is like, oh, I could have said this. And I was realizing mm-hmm. when we finished up our discussion of 1 Corinthians 13 last time on the topic of love that we kind of left out of the discussion, the fact, I, well, maybe we, we discussed it briefly, but that Jesus summarizes all 10 commandments into two. Mm-hmm. And of course, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But in Luke 6, and we did this on a podcast already, I know that. But on our Luke 6 podcast, we discussed the fact that Jesus discusses love in related to economic justice as well. And he says, no, what love looks like is, is he says, good measure, shaken and uh, pressed down, pressed down, shaken, and then, and then filled back up. And what he's referring to is, idea that when you're selling grain and you pour grain into a thing, maybe you measure a quart, whatever their measurements might have been back in those days, you measure the grain. If you shake it, the grain settles, and then you can put more in it. And when you put more in it, and then you press it down, you can put more in it. And the idea is that you're giving somebody a fair measure of grain. And that's illustration is used by Jesus to define what love is. This, this is what God does. This is what, God, this is what it looks like to follow God, because God does the same thing. I thought, oh, they should have talked about the fact that love has this very practical element of doing justice and caring for the other. I know we talked about the caring for the other part, but I want to kind of bring that up. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, so now you can go back and rest for the rest of your Sunday. Yeah, yeah, really. No, after the <laughs> night, I'm like, oh, dang, I should have said this. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm curious. The lowliest I, day of the week is Wednesday night after our podcast is finished being recorded. Exactly. Uh, a question on that, though. Sundays, you know, you, you do ministry all day. You're with people, uh, you get home and are you like, are you, are you, you know, plopped over on the couch yep. or what is that the way? It looks yeah. Like yeah. It? Usually Sunday afternoon would be my Sabbath and yeah. especially during football season. Like, okay, yep. game's on. Don't yep. want to do anything. You know, now for the last several years, I was teaching a couple of years ago when I was pastoring, we had a, um, a church that met in our home. And so we, we had that, we tried on Saturday nights, but that yep. didn't work because people would go away for the weekend, you know, type of thing. So we ended up doing that on Sunday nights. So I would have like maybe enough time between after in the afternoon to kind of like catch the morning games and finish and then watching mm-hmm, them for a little mm-hmm. bit, get a little bit of a respite. But then I had to prep for it. You know, yep. and the, the worship people came over early and kind of started setting up, you know, music stands and sound for it was in my house or, you know, we cooked dinner and we had dinner. So I'm, I'm cooking meals and I'm barbecuing stuff mm-hmm, like that too. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, so I had to figure out another, another way of getting uh, a Sabbath somewhere else in there, but Sunday afternoon would be certainly a time of, of just going out and hitting some golf balls and mm-hmm. whatever, trying trying to relax. Because this is exhausting, and I and I want to encourage you if you were listening to this, uh, it, it's appropriate for so much of First Corinthians is talking about the church and how it functions, mm-hmm. and and we'll get more into that tonight. 
I mean, your, your pastors and your, your church staff, even your volunteers who are maybe if they're leading music mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, you know, just the people who have just that significant amount of work um, and everyone's serving in their own ways and they all have their gifts, but there are people who just do more in terms of the yeah. effort, especially if you have a set up church yeah, uh, right, where you're setting up and tearing down. down. Yeah, yeah. Where, where people are showing up at five or 6 a.m. and loading stuff and all yeah. that, man. It is exhausting. And uh, yeah. and like, those people often work 40 hours a week at some other job Monday through exactly. Friday. And then they come on Sunday. Exactly. And they can't sleep in because they're getting up at 5 or 6 a.m. Yep. Yeah, I've been that. I've been yep. there. We've, yep. we've done that together, I know. Yes. Well, we've set up and tear down a, at a couple of churches together. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. Thank those people. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I mean, they're not doing it for that, but uh, it that helps. <laughs> yeah. It helps. So we've talked that... Uh, We've talked a lot about through First Corinthians how Paul seems to be using this. Uh, he, he seems to be talking in response to a letter that the Corinthian church had written him, mm-hmm. and so we see that twelve verse one, the way he's he's starting off things now concerning uh, yeah yeah now concerning this. What would you say that the issue is that maybe he's addressing maybe as as far as what we're coming up against tonight? Well, we have to acknowledge the fact that. If you read different commentaries, you're going to kind of get different answers to this question, because obviously, as we've discussed many times before, when you're reading a letter, you're reading a correspondence of one person to another, and the other person's in the know. But we're the readers of the letter. We're not in the know like that, like the recipients of the letter are. So it's a little bit kind of like listening to that phone conversation that we've used that analogy before, where you're like trying to figure out what's going on on the other end. So we're not ultimately certain exactly what's happening there, but Again, to be clear, the people who wrote the letter to Paul are probably on Paul's side. So when you open up chapter one of 1 Corinthians, some say we follow Apollo or, or, or Cephas, Peter. Some say we follow Paul, some say Apollos, and some say Christ. The church was divided amongst these at least four factions of who their loyalty was, was to. Uh, the Jewish contingency towards Peter, using his Aramaic name of Cephas. Maybe the Greek contingency of Apollos. Maybe the spiritualists were like, oh, we follow Christ, which sounds great, but it's, it's divisive. And then we follow Paul, you know, hey, we're with you, we're with you, Paul. It's probably those folks, at least, who are writing the letter to Paul, saying, hey, Paul, this is what we're, what we're dealing with. Now, so when they cite and say, hey, Paul, this, someone in our church are saying this, it's not them who are saying it, it's someone else in the church that's, that's saying it, that's, that's causing these troubles. So here's what we know. In chapters one through four, Paul kind of addresses, maybe with a bit of sarcasm, those who are claiming to have some exalted spiritual status. Uh, and then there's this long argument uh, in First Corinthians addressed to people who thought they were like spiritualists. The Greek word is pneumatikoi. Paul believes that these people were kind of like disrupting the entire congregation and everything that's going on. Then in chapters 8 through 11, they thought, you know, we discussed this, that you know, all things are permissible for me. And Paul's like, well, yeah, but it's not all profitable. And then in chapters 12 through 14 now, the present section, it seems like these people were claiming that their spiritual gifts were made them better than others and made them more elite than others. And Paul's like, look, unless you use your spiritual gifts for the benefit of the whole church, which we'll get into tonight, then they're worthless. If you speak in the tongue of men and of angels, which that's probably what they were claiming. Oh, we've got this language of angels and tongue of the angelic voices. Paul's like, yeah, but unless you do it with love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Then what's interesting is this. In chapter 15, which is maybe one of the more famous chapters, chapter 13, the love chapter, chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. It's Paul's longest speech on any one topic, by the way, in any of in any of Paul's writings. He spends more time on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 than any other topic in any of his other letters. What's interesting is that chapter doesn't begin with now concerning. So he's 
He's been transitioning from, from now concerning to, you know, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter 12, chapter 11. I'm sorry, no, chapter 12, verse one. Those are the transitions of identifying what you guys addressed now concerning the matters you wrote about. And so, but there's no now concerning in chapter 15. So it seems like Paul is bringing up the topic of the resurrection himself and maybe implying, you know what, guys, what's happening here is what you guys are saying about your elite spiritual status and maybe having attained some eschatological, some eschaton, some end time, some, some heavenly status is ultimately undermining the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection that we believe in, that Paul says, in fact, this is a matter of first importance in chapter 15. Summarizing it all up, it, it seems like we have a, at least one group, if not more than them, that were claiming to have some spiritually elite status. Their ability to speak in tongues was their proof that they were who they thought they were and that they were special and elite. And Paul, of course, puts them down a little bit in chapter 12 by saying, ah, tongues like the last gift on all, the, on all the, the list of gifts in terms of the hierarchy, it's the least important. And then we'll address it more specifically in chapter 14, uh, chapter 14 here uh, um, tonight. And I'll just say this. We do, depending on your denominational background mm. and how you look at gifts, we oftentimes do the same thing even today. And I think I think Paul would, would mm. knock on us today. Speaking of someone who is a musician, I'm someone who's going to have a high profile service opportunity on a Sunday morning, mm -hmm. especially at a, if you have a church that has a band and all that. And, and I've been a part of churches that do that. And so I'm, I'm even thinking this on- You played the organ? Is that I, I played the organ. Now that was when I grew up Lutheran. Uh, right. We had that. But, uh, you know, but I play the drums. Right. And and so if you're in the band, you're going to get all this, uh, yeah. you know, accolades, especially in a day and age of uh, so much Christian consumerism with music mm -hmm. and right. you have Caleb and you have all this stuff. And so the band is like the coolest thing ever. Right. Which it's the worship team. It's a worship team. Right. Right. Which yeah. I don't even like to use that term. Right. But, right. You know, I'm leading, helping it help leading and singing is what I'm doing. But you know, it, it's similar to an, in I'm helping lead by not singing. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. It's, it's similar in football though. You could say, okay, who's, oh, I'll use your awful example, but you know, the, the, I can't even say the word out loud. The Patriots, Patriots. have Patriots. been very successful. Patriots. The Patriots. Six time NFL six, champion. Six, six, six. Yeah. Ah, I'm yeah. seeing a connection there. Yeah. So, but everyone knows Tom Brady, right? Right. Okay. Name, name one offensive lineman for anyone who's played for Tom Brady in the last 20 years. Yeah, I can obviously. But, well, you can, yeah, yeah. But, but no one else can. But but it's like without any of those guys, what is Tom Brady going right, to be exactly. sacked every time? You know, well, but, he's not having a very good season this year because he's got no offensive line. <laughs> in Tampa Bay. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. The point is, there's these other people who are always going to be unsung, and so even in music, we have the same thing where the band is getting accolades. I I got so many. I played this past Sunday. Uh, so many great text messages, yeah. encouraging messages from people in my congregation, and they're awesome. But did the sound guy get that same sort of thing? Right. Did, did the person running slides, you know, for the lyrics get that? You know, it, and right. it, just the person who got there early to help, you know, set up stuff wherever it's, it, it, we, we do hierarchy of those sorts of things where one is sexier than the other. And, mm -hmm. and I think Paul would, would have the same type of, uh, you know, chastisement. Cause in a way it's like, stop, stop elevating yeah. other people is more important than others. We're all doing our role to make a, a corporate worship happen. Yeah, and yeah. it's all and all there, these gifts have to do with edifying the body. It's not just one yeah, thing. Yeah, sorry for interrupting you there. there. There's several tangents we can go down, which we'll save yeah. for our discussion, maybe in First Timothy, also about 
the danger of elevating these people mm -hmm. to a certain status or because we assume, oh, if you're on stage singing in worship, then you must be ultra spiritual. It's like, no, I'm just a really yeah. good singer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure about this Jesus thing. You know, it's, yeah. There really are people that are, or they're struggling in their marriages or they're struggling in yeah. their homes. And then we're here elevating them because they're on stage and, and they have the limelight and we see them all the time. We think they must be great. And then we go to the store and see them, you know, yelling at their spouse or, or well, I'll, I'll say that there's many musicians who are hired to play at churches on Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been mm -hmm. paid multiple times to play at churches and I mean, I'm a Christian, but I would be playing with other musicians who I knew or it's like, mm, interesting. I, I remember there was one time I was playing at a church and in, you know, after we, we uh, played the, one of the musicians was going to go and smoke weed in his car. Oh. And then he came back and he played at the end. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's not yeah, atypical yeah. to happen. You know, you have people yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 I didn't know that because no one ever offered me money to sing at their church. Or, <laughs> so I'm just wondering. I've actually had offers to like not sing and yes, we'll even like, pay you. We will sing. pay you. We'll give you your tithe back <laughs> if you don't sing. <laughs> I'll just show up and raise your hand. You're good at that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just, anyway, just pretend. Yeah, yeah. Just sway. Uh, you can. I guess you can't have a lighter anymore. So turn the light on your cell phone and oh, there you go. go back and forth like it's a yeah. concert from the 70s. Anyway, where do we want to go from here? We, we're, we're talking about gifts. We're talking about how gifts ultimately the job of them is to edify mm -hmm. the body, right? That's the right. point of a spiritual gift. It's not just for you to be able to go and make a lot of money. Yeah. And the word edify means to build up, right? Mm -hmm. to, to invest in others and, and to build others up. And that's how if spiritual gifts don't edify others, then they're they're worthless if they do edify or build up others. Then they're that's manifesting love for others, and that's the kind of the key. So let's begin by maybe looking at the first five verses of chapter fourteen. If you want to read that, go ahead. Okay. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So this first, the first 25 verses, obviously we only read the first five, but the first 25 verses of this chapter kind of contrast the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And they basically contrast them on the basis of, well, one's unintelligible. It's just, it's, you're speaking mysteries. No one knows what you're saying. That's tongues. And one's intelligible. Everyone understands it and it's great. And the, Paul's our whole argument is we need intelligibility. The whole point of it is you're not benefiting anybody if they don't know what you said. And if they don't understand what you said or understand what you mean, uh, we should probably sell some preachers that same thing, by the way, mm -hmm. just kidding. Uh, anyways, <laughs> Ultimately, then the purpose of gifts are to edify the body. And Paul says it like seven different times, the idea of edifying the body. And since tongues are not understandable, they don't edify anybody. That's verses two and four that you just read. But prophecy, it is edifying for, for the congregation. And that's why he begins, notice he begins by saying, follow the way of love, right? So pursue love. So again, the end of chapter 12 had this, you know, uh, let me show you a more excellent way, chapter 12, verse 31, and that's the way of love. And so it seems like this love chapter interrupts the discussion of spiritual gifts, and it doesn't. And then chapter 14, back to the topic of spiritual gifts more specifically now, but even that chapter is, uh, begins with pursue love. And then he says, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So th I think that's the key thing that we understand in this section. A few weeks ago, I think it was when we were in chapter 12, so a few episodes ago, I think we hinted at apostleship and prophecy mm -hmm. a little bit, but we we were going to save yeah, yeah. digging into it till today. So um 
it's interesting that you know back in chapter 12 paul makes apostleship like the biggest gift the the greatest thing that someone can have but he doesn't tell anyone to seek after that he, but he does say seek after prophecy yeah yeah so in chapter 12 paul ranks the spiritual gifts in verse 28 god's appointed first in the church apostles second prophets third teachers and then miracles gifts of healing helps administration various kinds of tongues and so those tongues at the bottom of the list uh, and then he says in chapter 14 now eagerly desire spiritual gifts and especially prophecy. It's like, well, mm -hmm. prophecy is like number two on that list. Why did he not say eagerly desire apostleship? And I think the answer is because apostle is not available. Apostle is not up for them to have. And to be an apostle, the word apostle means one who is sent. And specifically, in one sense, we're all apostles, right? Because mm -hmm. we're all sent. But specifically, the office of apostle was one who was specifically sent by Christ himself. We'll deal with this in Second Corinthians because some of the church in Corinth were still challenging Paul's apostleship. You're not even a legitimate apostle. And Paul's answer is going to be, have I not seen Jesus? Right. I mean, he wasn't, the, he wasn't saying, am I not a sent one? He, he right. was talking about a specific type of apostleship. Yeah. 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 The office specifically mm -hmm. is that Jesus has appointed you to be an apostle. And we know by the way, that there's more than just 12, mm -hmm. right? So Barnabas mm -hmm. appears to be called an apostle mm -hmm. and others. And we'll discuss that later, maybe in our discussion in second in second Corinthians. But it appears that the office of apostle is not available any longer, or, or, or other than you know when Jesus selects. Historically, the church has said that the office of apostle ends with the, the death of the apostles themselves in the first century, that there mm -hmm. are no apostles. The idea behind that would be that the apostle is the highest authority in the church, having an office equivalent to what would be the Old Testament prof prophetic office. Because in the Old Testament, remember, you have the king, who is the political head of the, of the, of the nation, but then the prophet becomes kind of the religious head of the nation mm -hmm. obviously the high priest uh, they're, yeah. they're also but the prophet's the one who's kind of keeping the king in check uh so to speak right and speaking into the king and speaking into the country and into the nation and speaking to the people uh, on behalf of the lord so that's what an apostle is doing in the, in the new testament the belief is that apostles are the ones who are responsible also for the revelation of the new testament in other words what is in the new testament I, this is the idea was written by an apostle and if it wasn't written by an apostle, it was approved of by an apostle. Like mm -hmm. Luke who was certainly a, a, a companion of Paul. So mm -hmm. his writing is, I think Paul even quotes it in 1 Timothy, uh, where he quotes the gospel of Luke and says it's scripture. So Paul authenticates Luke. So, okay, Luke is in. Matthew, well, we traditionally believe he's an apostle, right? And kind of go down the list. John or Mark was maybe written you know, because of Peter's uh, authority and Peter's resource. So that's kind of the idea. So apostle doesn't exist any longer beyond it doesn't exist beyond the ones who are currently serving that role and, and it's not available to you. So therefore seek prophecy, which now is number two on the list. Hmm. That was a quick answer, wasn't it? That was, that was almost a tweet, <laughs> maybe two tweets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so back uh, in the chapter 12 episode, when we talked about that, I yeah. brought up tongues and, you know, I asked, Hey, are there different types of gifts with tongues or, you know, is one like a prayer language you, you hear this? I don't mm -hmm. come from a tradition that's charismatic right. where uses this, but I, I know I had friends who would say, oh, you know, I speak in tongues as a prayer language and there's other people who might say it in a different kind of way. You know, what do we do with this? Because, you know, is Paul forbidding this? You know, what is the gift of tongues that that Paul would be uh, referring to? So there's definitely going to be differences of opinion on this. So I'll kind of give my take, which I think you probably are in the same camp because we kind of have same similar mm -hmm. backgrounds and from my own experience there. But I think we're going to have to 
be gracious enough to say, yeah, there are others who disagree and hold to a different viewpoint. So I'll do my best to represent them, but I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly because I, I don't subscribe to that camp. Sure. But in, in chapter 14, verse 14, or verse 13, it says, therefore, the one who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. Mm -hmm. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. This is a common verse that's used for some who say that there are different types of tongues, plural. It's called the gift of tongues, plural. And the idea behind that is that there are different gifts. One of the distinction that's commonly made amongst the more charismatic side of, Christ, of Christianity, of Protestantism specifically, and there are charismatic Catholics, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, that was big in the 60s and 70s. But the idea being that there's the spiritual, there's the prayer language that is only for you between you and the Lord. So when you pray, your spirit's praying. You don't know what's being said, but that's okay. It's great because the spirit's interceding for you. And anyways, mm -hmm. and Paul says that in Romans chapter eight, the spirit intercedes for us because mm -hmm. we don't know how to pray. So the spirit intercedes for us. So you're just, you're just step, going to step two with that prayer language. Instead of praying in English and having the spirit intercede, you're just praying in the spirit language, a language led by the Holy Spirit. And obviously God knows what it means. And that's, that's it. So that's the idea of a prayer language. And then there's also the gift of tongues. Mm -hmm. So, Typically, the, those who hold that viewpoint, that there's at least those two, the, the prayer language and the gift of tongues, they're going to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, look, only speak in tongues if there's an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, like keep quiet, no more than three altogether, one at a time, and there must be an interpreter. They're going to say that Paul is only addressing the gift of tongues and not the prayer language. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way they work their way. I, I, I'm going to say they work their way around this particular passage, but they don't feel like they're actually working their way around, around the text. My response to that is that, A, I'm not going to invalidate their experience. I'm, I, I can't do that. Okay, look, you have these experiences and and you pray in a spirit in a prayer language that you think is, that you certainly believe and have this experience that it's been edifying unto you. I, I, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to accept that and, and grant that. Uh, I don't believe that there's a distinction, that the word tongues is plural, because in the book of Acts, the very first time, they spoke in tongues. They spoke in many languages, plural. Mm -hmm. And all the people for, who had gathered around from the Roman world uh, all heard them speaking in their own language. So it was tongues, plural, the first time. And that first time often sets the stage for how it's going to be described every time thereafter. Now, those who believe in the gift of tongues as like plural gifts, no, they don't believe that we're speaking in other languages. They don't speak. There have been historically, by the way, missionaries that were sent to China with no training at all, they were going mm. to just simply speak in tongues. Mm. And the Holy Spirit was going to interpret that in the Chinese so the people could, and they were miserable failures. And it wasn't just China, it was other other countries of the world as well. But the idea being then that people who believe in tongues today, almost all don't do not believe, or the charismatic side who believe that there mm. are two different kinds of gifts or more than two kinds of gifts, don't believe that we're speaking in other languages. They speak, we're, we're speaking in a heavenly language that someone with the gift of interpretation can somehow understand and then translate into our, our common language. So the point then is, is that first time that happened in the book of Acts, that was the one that set the stage for what it's going to be called, but that was clearly a unique event. We, we don't speak in Italian and Chinese and whatever else today. And so I think that that's how I understand the fact, the reason why the word is plural, not that it refers to different kinds of gifts. So I, I don't agree with that, but again, I would think, I do think kind of what Paul says in chapter 14 is going to dispel the idea that you should be using tongues in, in a church setting. And some charismatics would agree with that and some wouldn't. Oh, no, they're just speaking a prayer language, so they're not violating what Paul says. 
let's go a little bit further in the text here in chapter 14. I'll, I'll kind of explain why I think that shouldn't be done, but. So question on that with tongues, then one in, in my tradition, you know, there's the, the charismatic gifts are done away with. And that was something for the first generations of Christians anyway, oh, uh, you know, only. And, and my tradition comes from a dispensational uh, background. So I think that was more of the, uh, you know, where they're coming from in terms of the presuppositions. But the the thought was there's no apostles or gift of tongues or prophecy anymore because those are the things that were only for the first generation apostles and that the, all those things died away there then. So when we're talking about tongues, would you say then, and obviously you're not coming from this from a dispensational background. Uh, I, I just think that that's popular for a lot of people when they don't believe in it, they just kind of, uh, you know, excuse it away to that. W would you say though, tongues is something that should be expected or could happen? Uh, I, I know that you're someone who hasn't, not, you, you like we're together, we haven't experienced this. For me, I would say, hey, I, if it happened, it happened. I'm not saying God doesn't do that anymore. I just have never experienced that. Right. Um, other people might, and that's that's not for me to discount. Are you kind of in the same... Uh, same boat. Yeah, you know, I just don't know what to think really uh -huh. about it because I come from that background of not experiencing it. I think in a lot of the churches that I've been in, whether I was pastoring on staff or just attending, that people would freak out if someone started speaking in tongues, mm -hmm. uh, even though they might affirm that the gifts are all active and still there. They don't know what to do. Yeah, I just, I, I think, sure, I have no problem with it. Now, by the way, there aren't just reform theologians who strongly believed in the cessation of gifts also yes yeah one of them was one of my one of my professors in fact mm -hmm. um in my for my phd program i don't i don't agree with that perspective i think the gifts are there are still active uh, what have you and i do know obviously in other countries of the world they're certainly more active but or more um popular obviously the charismatic movement is the mm -hmm. fastest growing movement within christendom uh, globally also but if it, if it happened and there was an interpretation i'd say Okay, cool. And I think we would test it out and 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 let it go. But that's kind of where I would probably leave it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that we've exhausted the idea of tongues, you know, master students everywhere could just listen to this podcast there and I'm gonna write a 12 page paper. Uh prophecy, what do we do with that? Yeah, I didn't really give a full answer to that earlier. So prophecy, and I think you'll see this in Paul uh, in this chapter that prophecy seems to have this meaning not equated with the Old Testament prophecy. That's the first mm -hmm. problem that we have. Now, there are prophets in the New Testament. There's Agabus in the book of Acts who makes a prediction, hey, Paul, you're going to get to Jerusalem and they're going to bind you just like I bound you with this belt. Uh, you're going to be arrested. And of course, Paul is arrested. There's going to be a famine and certainly there was a famine. There are prophets, prophets like that, kind of what we consider Old Testament prophets who are predicting things. But the word prophecy in the New Testament is often used for someone who speaks authoritatively with regard to what God has already spoken. And that typically is the scripture says this, and a good sermon, a good preacher is simply going to be, have this gift of prophetic gift where he's taking the word of God and applying it. He or she is taking the word of God and applying it to your life or our life or the situation or these, these circumstances. That's kind of the idea of prophecy. This and, and you're going to see that Paul's going to talk about at the end of this chapter, hey, listen, when someone speaks in prof, a prof, prophetic word, then the rest of us have to evaluate that. And I think that what that evaluation is this this talk. Hey, what do you think about that? Oh, I think that uh, the idea of that would be that if the prophet's speaking revelatory words from God, there's no evaluating this. It's like, oh, God said this. I guess we better listen. 
Instead, this is a, someone speaking authoritatively upon God's word, and now it needs to be evaluated and flushed out and discussed and nuanced. And, and what about this? Or what about that? And, uh, and, and I think that's kind of the idea of what prophecy really means in the, in the New Testament most often. Yeah. And one thing we didn't, because uh, we, we didn't really define the Old Testament concept of prophecy too much. Mm-hmm. Though. And while there is a future telling right. aspect of it, the majority of prophecy is a prophet calling his contemporaries to obey Torah and to return right. to Torah. You know, there are future aspects. It's not of predictive. It. Yeah. No. Yeah. And some of it is, Hey, like if you don't do this, then this will happen. It's the, if then, you know, blessings and curses right. and some of it might be future down the road, but how many of those have we seen fulfilled in Jesus? And right, how many of right. those were talking about what Jesus uh, did? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. A prophet. And we discussed this when we did the genre of the book of revelation yeah. about a year and a half ago, that uh, apocalypse prophets and, and, and letters, a prophet, all three of those genres, the writers are, are concerned first and foremost to the audience to whom they were speaking. So the prophet of the ancient world was speaking authoritatively about what God had said, as you mentioned in the mm-hmm. law. And when they made it, hey, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. They're they're predicting something in the future only because well, the Torah says this. The, the law says if you don't do this, God's going to kick you out of the land. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's 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 to get the people to act in the in the present. Yeah. All right, let's move to the next section. So chapter 14, verses 15 through 19. Mm-hmm. And here Paul kind of gives a summation of his convictions on tongues and prophecy. So What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in my tongue. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Yeah. And, and there you go. This whole The whole idea, Paul says, is for corporate worship is to build others up. And if you're not speaking in uh, intelligible words, then you're not speaking language that's, that's building others up. Uh, you know, verse 14, Paul says, my mind is unfruitful. In verse 15, if you, you bless only in the spirit. In verse 16, how can anyone else who's coming in say amen? And verse 17, others are not edified. And hmm. Paul's conclusion then, verse 19 is, I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. Yeah, and, and the point that, like that you let off with is the, the point of corporate worship is to build other people up, right? And how often do we think of a church service? How often do you, have you heard the phrase, I'm not being fed. Right. And there's an aspect of that that's true. Right. Like, right. like people right. need yep. to evaluate their own personal growth and evaluate what's actually happening. But it's not about you necessarily. Right. No, it's consumerism and mm-hmm. and has how much consumerism has infiltrated the Christian church in the 20th and now into the 21st century. Yeah. Well, I yeah. go to the church I, because that pastor preaches sermons that that I that I benefit from. Yeah. So you're supposed to go to church to serve. Yes. The whole idea of spiritual gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of First Corinthians, the whole idea of going to church together is to utilize the gifts as members of the body for the sake of the well-being of the rest of the body. Yeah. So if you stop going to that church, then all of a sudden now your gift is not being used at that church. And now it's being over without another church, but you're only going out of the church, not to use your gift, but because they have, uh, I was going to say a good children's program, but I get the fact mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. parents have kind of this concern for children. Yes. I get the fact that you go to a church because that's where my kids can plug in. But here's the thing. You're also sending a message to your kids. Mm -hmm. And that message is we only go to the church that has the things that suit our needs. Yeah. 
you know, and so there's there's a there's a fine balance there. That's that's I don't know what the answer is. Sometimes you go to a church where, hey, we're going to learn to serve because this church needs us, and it's all hands on deck at the small little church. And the kids are like, yeah, this is I don't like this, and they kind of grow up resenting it. But, hey, all right. But then at the same time, you go to the church where they're entertained, and they're it's a carnival, and they don't learn the value of service. They don't learn the value of I go to church because. Christ gave his life for me and I'm going to learn how to give my life for others. Uh, they, they're going to church because they have a great puppet show and a great act and they yeah. give, give, give out candy and great snacks and have a great playground and they have funny you know, shows and skits. And my friends are all there. We, so, we, have a, uh, we have a church in town maybe two miles up the road on the same street as us. And it's, it's known as, uh, it's a very large church and it's the biggest church in, in our county probably. Right. They they are very much known for their theatrics and how good their music is, mm. and uh, it's very much what we would call a seeker sensitive uh, type right. of church. And we have a number of people who have they identify and they say, "Oh, I go to both this church and mm. your church, Vinny." And our church is known for our robust theology and those sorts of things. And they say, "Well, we go there for the the, the worship, and then we come here to be fed." Oh, wow. and it's like, wow. oh my gosh, that like. If you think you're being fed here and that's still your attitude, you're missing the point yeah, on yeah. so many levels. Yeah. You know, I think we both agree that, you know, I find a problem with the seeker sensitive idea of, of church. Mm -hmm. I do respect the fact that some of those churches are reaching people that couldn't be reached with yes. the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And so their answer is, hey, listen, there's a church up in the Bay Area that used to have this mantra. And that was, oh, we're going to try to get them in and help yeah. them find Jesus. And then we're going to send them to you guys to mm -hmm. get discipled. So we only want people to come to our church for two or three years. Okay. Mm -hmm. I get that. That That's actually, uh, it's, it's kind of like they're, they're, they're evangelists, right? And then you guys are the pastors and teachers. So we'll just evangelize these guys and send them off to you. That's that I, I can, I can live with that. It's the churches that this is the way church is all yeah. the time. And we want you to stay here for 30 years. And there's never a call for discipleship. It's yes. only a call for entertainment. I think we're missing the point, right? Yeah. And it's the idea of what you win them with is what you win them to. Yeah. And so if everything is just fluff yeah. and fun and awesome, and I've had these real conversations with people, what happens people from this church, I'm thinking of when they're faced with a life crisis mm. in which there's an uh, undiagnosed, uh, they can't diagnose the problem and it's what something's happening physically and all they've been getting from this other side is, well, you just need to pray more, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that. And now because... God's not healing them. They're obviously their prayer is wrong or there's hidden sin and they, mm -hmm. they get all the accusations and, and there's no theology, meaningful theology of suffering. There's no understanding of redemptive history and understanding how the fall has uh, right. affected all things. Like all these things are missing because you go to church on Sunday and you have this worship experience and that's mm -hmm. great. But what happens when, when mama bird is done vomiting in your mouth, you have to wait to come back to get fed again. Uh, yeah, and you just see yeah, the damage yeah. that that affects people. It does. And 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 I think others, I know others that get disillusioned because they're like, wait a minute, I read the gospels and it tells me that I'm supposed to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. Mm -hmm. And this is a far, you know, this is a farce. And so they they kind of left because of the show. That, yeah, that's the biggest problem that I have with it is the fact that how can you actually preach the gospel yeah. in that environment and call people to the gospel and to gospel living of cross-bearing, denying, yep. of self-denying love? When the whole idea you got him in with, you know, uh, it's the be carnival. a Daniel or be a Joseth or be yeah, a, you know, yeah. it, it's be a David and it's look at how, yeah, it's all that stuff. Yeah. That now let's be honest, honest. by the way, none of the churches have it right. None of no, them have not it at right. all. Nope. Yeah. There's no such thing as this one has it. We're nope. all struggling to do, to do our best. 
But I think that what we need to do our best together is a communal gathering yep. for the sake of serving one another and building one another up and bearing one another's burdens and then sending them, sending us all out to now go out and, and be models of cross-bearing love to the nations. Absolutely. Yeah. Or a cruciform love, as our friend Michael Gorman would say. Yeah. Hey, uh, one thing that's interesting in this section is while Paul is giving strong words about tongues, he doesn't say, don't speak in tongues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've gone back and forth over the years with this, and um, he definitely does not. In fact, he definitely says, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. He specifically says that, right? But I almost wonder, and I have wondered at times if Paul was kind of like tongue in cheek a little bit, like, you know what, guys? These people are so problematic. I wish we could just shut them up altogether. Mm. But all right, it's a spiritual gift. We can't do that. You know, I, I don't know if that was his attitude or if his attitude was, look, it's still a spiritual gift, guys. No, let's just use it within within reason. I think the humanity of me, right, says Paul was human too. And he was probably like, I wish we could just shut these people up and like not even <laughs> and just and just ban it all together. But all right, uh-huh. I won't ban it all together. I'd rather speak five intelligible words and 10,000 in a tongue, but you can still speak in tongues if you need to. I don't know where Paul actually was in that uh, yeah. in that uh, personal crisis there, but that's kind of what I wonder. But he did and not also, ban it, yeah. Well, and what I'll notice, I'm also making an argument from silence, which isn't the best exegetical yes. tool. Well, sure. he didn't say this, so that's, that's you know, it's it's an observation, but that's not, uh, you know, something that's drawing your conclusion. Yeah, no, but he does specifically say, but and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. yep. Next section. Yeah. Verse 20 through 25. Yeah, this is interesting. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. A little chiasm there. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. All right, wow. very good. So one of the things that you can do when you're reading the text is try to find the chapter breaks, the paragraph breaks, the section breaks. Now, sometimes your Bible is going to do that for you, but you can also check to see if they did it correctly or not. And one of the ways that you're going to do that is look for like key words or key phrases. And in the Greek, a key phrase would be something along the lines like brethren or brothers Mm -hmm. and sisters. And so verse 20, brothers and sisters, there's a paragraph heading right there. Now that paragraph heading in verse 20 through 25 is probably the concluding of this longer argument from chapter from 14, verse one. So here's your conclusion. Brothers, here's don't be children in your thinking. Now, note verse 26. What is the outcome then, brothers or brothers mm-hmm. and sisters? There's that word again, which I, there's a new paragraph break, and that's probably introducing a new section, still related because it's still talking about spiritual gifts and things of that nature, but it's kind of a part two. So that means this section is kind of, verses 20 through 25 is kind of concluding the, the, the argument. And Paul's argument is, look, Tongues do not lead people to obedience. Hmm. And tongues don't benefit believers or unbelievers. Like nobody benefits from them, only the person who's spoken it, unless there's an interpreter. In fact, the effect on unbelievers is actually the opposite. If they walked into your church, verse 23, and they're all gathered together. Now, remember, by the way, Corinth was a city that had lots of visitors in it. Corinth's location was such that there's a small little isthmus, a little narrow strip of land that 
takes the uh, a GNC and the Adriatic Sea and kind of connects them together. This and this like a five mile strip of land. So they would literally dock ships on the Aegean Sea side or on the Adriatic side, and then roll the ships across the the cargo across hmm. the fi- the narrow strip of land, and then put it on ships on the other side. And then the next day they'd sail away. As a result, you got lots of people staying the night or a couple nights in Corinth while the ships and the materials are, and the goods are being being transferred. To do all that labor, you got a lot of slaves. And so you have even more foreigners coming into the city because there's slave labor and there's need for slave labor. You also have basically the, the Corinthian games, we'll call them, the Isthmian games is what they were called, which happened every two years. And that also brought more people in to kind of come watch the games. So you have a lot of visitors in the city of Corinth. And so Paul says, look, verse 23, if the whole church assembles together and you all speak in tongues and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if prophet, verse 24, but if they all, if we all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted person enters, they'll be convicted by all. Mm. So not only then do tongues not benefit anyone, they actually cause non-Christians to go, you guys are whacked out and they walk out. That's one of the reasons why I personally, and it'd be interesting to have a conversation with somebody who's a charismatic theologian yeah. or a charismatic scholar. Or whatever. I personally say, look, even if you believe in the, the prayer language, it still seems to me that you shouldn't be doing it in church. The idea is like that person's babbling in their own in a spiritual language between them and the Lord. They're not doesn't need to be interpreted. It's, it's, they're just praying to themselves. It's like, yeah, but it shouldn't be done out loud. Uh, that I kind of wonder about that. So it'd be interesting to have a conversation with somebody about that. Um, but I think that's kind of the idea. Now, um, some have taken this to say the actual opposite of that. They, they actually take verse 22 and say, tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. They say, see, verse 22 says, tongues are a sign to unbelievers. It's like, that's not what he means. And we know that because verse 23 says, if an unbeliever walks in and you're all speaking in tongues, they're going to think you're whacked out or you're mad. What Paul seems to be saying here, and there's differences of opinion on this, is that other religious groups use tongues as a sign. Now, note, by the way, tongues are not a phenomenon only known in Christianity. They're mm-hmm. found in other religions of the world. So other religions of the world use tongues as a sign, but we don't, says Paul. We don't do that. So I think that's kind of the, the way I would summarize what Paul has to be saying here. All right, so moving right along, Paul concludes this whole thing where he he lays down some rules, some guidelines, we could say. So starting in verse uh, 26. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or th- uh, only two at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to uh, another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, which, oh my gosh, that passage, talk about a mm. verse that's you misused all the time. Right, yeah. Well, simply here, just to kind of summarize, I think the argument, I think the passage is fairly self-explanatory. I think Paul's whole point is that gifts should be used in an orderly fashion. And so he simply says, okay, look, here's the deal. When it comes to speaking in tongues, two or three at the most, but one at a time, and there must be an interpreter. If there's no t- interpreter, then keep quiet. And then he says, okay, when it comes to prophecy in the church, 
two or three at the most, and others have passed judgment on the prophecies themselves. Not, not on the prophet, by the way, but on the prophecies themselves. And, and I think this is interesting because it seems to suggest that there, what we might call a church service or a worship service mm-hmm. was actually kind of, uh, what, what, what's the word I want? Um, like a small group? Like a small group. Yeah, like mm-hmm. it, it's all, everybody's involved. I, I've written blogs, and I'll put this maybe in the show notes. I, I wrote some posts on, you know, why do we do church the way we do? And one of the things I argued was, why do we preach sermons? And I was saying this when I was preaching sermons. I'm like, why do we preach sermons? I was trying to get my congregation understand the fact that this is not a good way of, of communicating and see if we can't eventually move on to do something different. That just wasn't happening at the time. But the problem with the sermon is this, and I've said this before, I'll just be brief here. And that is this. First off, you have this incredibly diverse audience that you don't know necessarily more where everybody's at. Some people are there and they're not even Christians. Some people are there and they're strong, dynamic Christians and they're, they're, they're following the Lord really, really well. In the middle, you have people who are good Christian people and they're really working hard, but they are struggling and they and they're not sure of themselves. Mm-hmm. Then you have other people that they think they're all great and fine and dandy, but they're really Pharisees at heart and they're struggling and, and their their faith is actually weak, but they think they're great. So if you preach to that third group, trying to encourage them, you know what, your faith is good. You, you're 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 struggling right now, but it's all good and Christ is there, grace is there, God's spirit is with you and just trust in the Lord. You might be encouraging that last group that I mentioned who think they're strong believers, but their faith is actually shallow or weak and they're, they're fair circle at heart. If you try to condemn that last group or not condemn, but admonish that last group and say, hey, guys, you know what? You know, right now you guys are like whitewashed tombs here and you, you have all these good things on the outside, but in the inside, your heart's not there. You might be putting down someone mm-hmm. who is really, really trying, but they feel they feel insecure. You see the problem. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you have to water the gospel down so much in a congregational setting that the, that the mature believer is not getting anything out of it at all. I already know the story. I've heard it 10 times before. No real new insight. If you preach to them and give them new insights, then the, the unbeliever is like, I don't, you know, who's Jonah? I've never heard of David. I, so really, really difficult, Jonah. I've had situations where I preached a sermon and someone's come to me like, you know, a few weeks ago you said this. Well, did, did you mean this? I'm like, oh, no, I did not mean that mm-hmm. at all. Right. I had no idea that you were going to hear me that way. And that's always a difficulty when you're teaching at any time at all, right? People listening to the podcast, they think, oh, you said this, like, oh, that's not what I meant, right? <laughs> so you you need to have this participation. You need to have people being able to go, excuse me, are you saying this? Oh, no. And just clarify it right then and there for everybody. Because that, you know, that one guy in the coffee shop who two weeks later says, did you, did you mean this? Like, no, I'm like, I didn't get to clarify that with everybody else that might've thought I said that. Furthermore, when people are engaged, they learn more. Studies are uh, are emphatic that if you sit there and lecture at somebody for 30 minutes or an hour, as some churches do, people retain maybe 10%. I mean, I've had weeks where I'm like, what did I preach on on Sunday? It was two days ago. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and it takes me a little while to remember. There, a lot of people, I bet there's a lot of people. That if you ask them on Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, what was the sermon about today? They're going to go, I don't remember. They don't remember the topic, let alone anything that was that was spoken. At best, they're going to get like one nugget out of it. And so I just think we need to have this opportunity for people to engage and ask questions and interact because that's the best learning environment. Not only that, Paul seems to be saying it's using more people in the service and giving more people an opportunity to kind of participate and 
there's always a difficulty. You, you know, you and I both have a lot of teaching experience where somebody tries to dominate the conversation. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you you just handle that and you handle yeah. that well. But I think that's what's happening here is that they were participate participating particip- <laughs> participate. I was trying to say participatory and participating, and it came out as participating. Yeah. So it's a new word, but that's you know it, it, very, it very high in trans kind of, fats as well. Though <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyways. Paul's answer is that look, this is this is just going to maintain order and orderliness w- within our churches. Yeah, and I would say when you are looking at not only just orderliness but discipleship. Yeah, you know, if you are a church leader, especially listening to this, what are you doing to help bring alignment and continuity and all those things with? whatever your sermon looks like. How does that work within your small group system? How do those conversations look? How are you encouraging families to have conversations on the car ride home? Are you coordinating what's happening from the pulpit with your kids ministry? Or does the kids ministry just become a dumping ground? Is it, is it daycare? So you can sit in the service alone. And, and those are the things like, how can we be thoughtful about how we run our church services to make sure that no, there's alignment there in, in the whole family is being discipled. And it's not just a platform for the, the pastor to pontificate. Right, right. Yeah, I know churches where they take the sermon and then the preacher has to write a study guide that goes with it. And then that becomes the Bible study for the small groups. So the idea is, hey, in fact, I know during the pandemic, it was, uh, or even after the pandemic, it was like, hey, listen to the sermon online and mm-hmm. then get together on your small small groups on Zoom or yeah. now that none of they're back in person and you discuss the contents of the sermon. And so yeah. that's, that's phenomenal because yeah. now you got a small group of people talking about this, building one another up, forming community and digesting the contents of the, of the message that that's perfect. Yeah. And that, that's something at my church, I'm actually in charge of that aspect mm. of it. I create the that's study right, guides right, and yeah, it, we get to do that. And it's a lot of fun and it's, it's so cool to be able to hear how those yeah. things are now carried out through the week. And you have other staff pastors and people who are available to ask, answer questions. And if yeah. the preaching pastor said something that was a little confusing or new for folks, Hey, we could have those dialogues and a, they put I'm not saying, in the study notes that like correct what they said because they like totally messed up. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll say this as the as the editor of our study guides, I have, and we produce those study guides months in advance, right? right yeah. I have the fear of one day the preaching pastor getting up yeah. there saying, "Hey, this was in the study guide, but it's totally wrong." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I can totally see it. But if you handle it with with grace, it can be done. But it, yeah, <laughs> it'd be interesting if it happens. Yeah. yeah. Right. Verse thirty three, though, I, I mentioned this right after I read it. For God is not a God of mm-hmm. confusion, but of peace. This is something that I just. This is one of those passages that I always hear. It it becomes kind of like a uh, a trump card for when people don't like a theological position or something. Mm-hmm. They just say, "Well, basically, I'm confused by it, and so this can't be true because God's not a God of confusion." I mean, this is something that yeah, like yeah. I've had Jehovah's Witnesses yeah, yeah. say, "Oh, the, God can't yeah. be in a Trinity because Trinitarian theology is confusing, and God's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace." So we basically don't like yeah. beside the fact that it's grossly out of context. We don't want to also say, because I'm confused, therefore this means that God is confused. And so it can't be Christian, right? We don't want to report ourselves. Yeah. 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 The the context here is the fact that what you're doing is creating confusion and disorder in the service. And that's not the way God operates. He's a God of order and law. And so therefore stop doing that. Yeah. The argument that God's not the author of confusion, therefore God cannot be a Trinity, which, and let's be honest, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is difficult to comprehend. Yes. My, my response would be, God's timeless. Do you understand yeah. that? Because I don't. 
right? Because I can't, I mean, you can't like make an analogy of something that's timeless. You can't. No. The only thing that's timeless is God. It's God, and even yes. God's not even a thing, mm-hmm. right? The, God's a timeless being that transcends space, time, and matter. He, before the world began, what was God doing? The same thing he's doing now, because mm-hmm. there's no time in God's realm. That makes no sense. I can, or at least I can't fathom can't, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't fully comprehend that. The point of that is it's not confusion. It's simply my lack of ability to fully mm-hmm. comprehend the matter. To say that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit exist eternally in a loving relationship with one another. Okay, cool. I got it. But that they're one in being. All right. I don't fully understand that. But that doesn't mean that it's not from God because it's confusing. It just means that my mind isn't uh, able to comprehend the vastness and majesty of who God is. So from a theological standpoint, that's one of those things we don't say, I don't get it. I'm confused. Therefore, God wouldn't do this because God's got a God of confusion. And the other thing is we also don't want to do personal preference. I've heard arguments against using contemporary music or, or, you Mm. know, Christian rock music in a church saying, well, it's confusing and God's not a God of confusion. So at that point, someone's actually appealing to the Mm. the local gathering, but they're taking their own preference and imposing it. I find you know, guitars and drums to be creating a, a mass confusion yeah. therefore, and, and it's like, no, that's just, it, that's imposing your own. Uh, it's, it's called uh, a, a distraction for you, but doesn't yes. mean it's confusion or disorderly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so Paul, he concludes with some direct language. He's contending that the Corinthians need to consider Paul's commands. Mm-hmm. Like you guys yeah. need to sit on this. And yeah. it happens in uh, 32 and 33 or and 36. Yeah. You want to read 36 through uh, 40? Sure. Verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So, yeah, so Paul does use this kind of really strong language. Like, look, hey, Corinthians, you guys think that you're the source of truth or something? No, the word didn't come. uh, It came to you, not from you. And if anyone thinks they're spiritual, then they should recognize that Paul's speaking from the Lord. I mean, if you're spiritual, then you'll know that I'm speaking from the Lord. And so he is being very strong in in his language. And look, desire prophecy, don't forbid tongues, but everything should be done in an orderly fashion. We uh, skipped over a few verses. We didn't pay attention to 34 and 35, the women should keep silent in churches. So therefore, I guess we're not going to talk about them here either. Oh, we can, because we're men. We're oh, that's about. okay. We could talk yeah. about it. It's, yeah. it's kind of like when you see uh, churches that have a women's ministry led by a man. You've seen those like in those no. super, super complimentary oh churches. Gosh, yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I just, I, you know, I just, I saw like a, a Twitter thing, a feed about, I don't know if it was a movie or a television series, whatever about a, a kind of women being oppressed, you know, and you just see them like mm-hmm. the handmaid's tale. I don't, I don't, I haven't watched it. My wife has, but you know, and it's just like, Oh, it just, it's so these women that just live in this oppressive state. It's, it's, mm. it's, uh, so what are we doing with these past? Cue the violin music. You want to read verses 34 <laughs> and 35? Let me read those uh, verses. So verse 34 and 35. 
The woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak at church. Which is an interesting thing that he says, because in verse 11, or chapter 11, yeah. they're allowed to pray and prophesy in church. So why exactly. is Paul contradicting himself? Exactly. So there's all kinds of different answers for this, and we're not going to kind of go down the list of what, what different views are simply saying here. I'll, I'll kind of give what I think is happening there. For one, I don't think these are the words of Paul. I think there's another example where they're saying this, mm. uh, and Paul, and then Paul responds. So in verse 34, they're saying the women are to keep silent in the church, and Paul's answer is like, "Was it from you that the word of God went forth, or has it come to you only?" I think that's his, mm. his kind of response to them. He's like, "Wait a minute, what are you what are you talking about?" Yeah, the first problem is is that even his opponents, even if these are the words of his opponents, they can't be a, a, a command of total silence. Because mm -hmm. even they affirm that women can pray and prophesy in church. They just think that women have to have their heads covered when they do it. Hmm. So certainly Paul affirms that women can pray and prophesy in church. So he can't be this command of, of total silence. Uh, if the command was, um, if the problem was women in this dialogue, if there, if there was dialogue going on, hey, like, what do you think of that? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And some suggest that maybe uneducated women who were not certain of what's going on were you know, questioning this and questioning that. And the answer is, hey, you guys just go home and figure this out, uh, figure out later on. But the command to silence all women would silence all women. So in other words, if there's a woman prophet or prophetess, right, you silence her too. So this can't be this command to silence everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make, make any sense. So I think what's happening here that these are their words and that they're trying to silence women. And Paul's answer is, wait a minute, did the scriptures come from you for, first or did they come to you? It's not, a, it's not a command to absolute silence and it's not a command that's coming from Paul. Cool. So chapter 14 is done. Man, chapter 15, every chapter in the Bible is good. But is this one of those that it's like this needs to be in your Rolodex of of chapters in the Bible that you know about, especially the first part. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah, there's certainly a significant uh, aspect of first Corinthians 15. That's that, that, that belongs up there, especially for the, the centrality it is to the Christian gospel. Mm -hmm. It's not one of those passages where I'd say, Hey, you know, Hey, go home and memorize this passage mm -hmm. or meditate on this. But the significance of what Paul says in first Corinthians 15 regarding the resurrection of Jesus and the, the role of the resurrection of Jesus in the Christian theology and, and what it means for the gospel itself. And uh, there, I think it's absolutely central. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I can't wait to get into that. We'll probably spend a few weeks in chapter 15 because there's yeah, a lot going on there. Yeah. Yep. So cool. All right, everyone. Hope you're enjoying this. Uh, continue to follow along in the devotionals. If you're getting that, if not email Rob and he'll get you on the uh, list. And if not, we'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.